0: This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. Great to see all of you here today. You know, really, what a, what a beautiful weekend. And I, and I think, you know, the, the, the definitions of church that are beyond just a building, but are about ripples out into the world. That's where we come to see church not as an institution. But church is an invitation, an invitation to really live purposefully and really live in very loving ways. And that's what today is going to be talking about. We're also closing our series, so I want, to, I, want to, I want to close it and then sort of use that to kind of launch out into our wonderful speakers we have for you today. I'd ask you to take a look back here to the close of the series. We're going to be talking about returning from Rwanda. And as we look at living gratefully, these are the points I want to be just, just making sure we're very aware of. Can we, and I have you say the last E word there. Can we work on seeing the world with beginners? And then I have you say the last C word there, polysyllabic and all. Finding a gratitude beyond. Same thing on the last one. Accepting that we are loved by God and passing that love on. You guys are good at pronunciation. Releasing our obsessive need. Boy, this is one I need to work on. Releasing our obsessive need for security and finding the inspiration that grows from? And the last one, embracing change and uncertainty. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Like, like, let's pull all this together. And the general context is this. Like, these men have come back from Wanda. They've had their own battles in life. And and there's parts of life where we, we get to understand that there is possible a moving forward. Yes, with countries like Rwanda, and yes, on a personal loss as well, that there is a moving forward. And the choice we have in those moments is can we actually pay it forward? Because we know that God's a good God. And we know that the story is not just good. The story is very good. The Bible passage I want to read really quickly to you, and they're going to put the key word up on the screen as I read this. This is from Psalm 30. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. And then this line, this beautiful line, Weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes with the morning. A beautiful line. Joy comes with the morning. And with that, I want to introduce to you two wonderful speakers. Now, the, 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 the back story to this is I was invited to Erica and Phil's wedding. We did this beautiful wedding. I'm sitting there, am sitting beside Pat and his wonderful wife, Linda. We're chit-chatting, and uh, as we're chit-chatting, he said, do you know Malcolm Walter perchance? And I said, yes, I do. I know Malcolm. And Malcolm actually just, it was, you'll, you'll get parts of this story. Malcolm just uh, a few months before I'd written him and posthumously his wife a, a letter because I wanted them to know how much they had meant in my life. You know, they, they were incredibly informative in my life, incredibly formative in my life. And so we're talking, and, and he says he knows Malcolm, so I did what any of you would do. I pulled up my camera, and we took a selfie, and we sent it to Malcolm out in California. And then I did what I usually do, which I asked Pat to come speak at New Church Live. And, and he said yes, and Malcolm said yes. Malcolm actually flew the whole way out from California just to be with you folks today. So we truly do have a remarkable story. And with that, I offer our first speaker, Pat. Thank you. Good
1: morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a little bit about um, water and why that's an issue around the world. Uh, I'm going to talk about the organization that uh, I've been part of, or volunteer, and on the board of, Water for People. Um, I'll, uh, you know, Chuck asks us to share a little bit about ourselves and maybe why we're, uh, (laughs) what our gratitude is about and how that relates to the work that we're doing. And then I'll turn it over to Malcolm, and he'll share more about our trip to Rwanda, uh, and some of the amazing stuff we saw there, and some of uh, Malcolm's personal story, which is also um, just amazing. So I guess the first thing is, you know, what I find is most people don't know a whole lot about water as an issue uh, from a poverty standpoint. Um, and if you travel in the developing world, which I'm sure some of you have, and I've done a lot of, um, you realize it's a huge issue. It's, it's uh, maybe the core issue of what's driving poverty. Uh, there's 1.8 billion people on the planet that don't have access to clean water, 2.4 billion people that don't have access to sanitation. And what that means, they don't have toilets. Um, And water and sanitation obviously go together. If you don't have sanitation, the water becomes contaminated. Another uh, thing that happens from that, uh, unfortunately, is 840,000 people a year die from waterborne diseases, mostly diarrhea. Uh, Not, you know, As uh, well-known as maybe some of the other issues that people work on, but in the developing world, this is a big deal. Um, The other thing that's a big deal is the impact on families, and particularly women. So if you were in uh, Rwanda with us, um, well, maybe the first slide up there I should have asked for, sorry. If you were in Rwanda with us, you'd see a couple things you'd see typically. You'd see, unfortunately, that picture in the middle of people taking water from that uh, uh, obviously unprotected source. You know, if that's the water you have to drink from, that's what you're going to use. And the other thing you'll see is people carrying water, mostly women, mostly young girls. I've tried this. It's hard work. You know, a jerry can, put that on your head, walk uphill for a mile. Do that a couple hours every day. That That's hard work. And the problem is, if women are hauling water, they're not in school, um, they can't have... Uh, uh, a, a, Other things that would drive income, like driving uh, or or having a garden, or other things that happens around the developing world. So it's a a big problem and relates a lot to poverty. And until you can solve the water part of the equation, I'm not sure personally how you could solve some of the other things and and get people out of poverty. Well, these are big numbers, but maybe make it a little bit more personal. Uh, My wife and I were on a, a, a trip to see some of the Water for People work in Honduras, And we met this woman. She was about our age, and we were uh, visiting uh, this community, and they'd just gotten these these, uh, water sources put into their community. They were so happy. And this woman, she's in her 60s. She's all dressed up for the meeting with us, and she's kind of bouncing her granddaughter on her knee. And she said, I'm so excited. I have hauled water my entire life. It's a a mile from here down to the water point. I don't have to do that anymore, and my granddaughter's never going to have to do that. That was so cool. It was so exciting. But I also thought, you know, is is her granddaughter going to say, yeah, Grandma. I know, you hold water a mile every day, you know. (laughs) But... (laughs) Um, And I hope that happens. You know, that would be so cool. Uh, Also, we were visiting, you know, people don't think about the sanitation side of things, but we're in India, and we visited a school. And uh, you just kind of take for granted. Schools have bathrooms. No, they don't. So we visited this middle school, high school, And they didn't have bathrooms, and our organization, Water for People, was helping them put in these bathrooms. Um, And what we were told is the ratio went from 80% boys, 20% girls, to 50-50. Wow. The thought that women aren't getting an education because there's not toilets? That seems crazy. But that's really what's happening in the developing world. Uh, So having access to to toilets, other than the obvious health issues, also provides... uh, uh, Lots of benefits um, uh, for women. Well, we're making progress. You know, If you think about how many people don't have access to clean water, some of the statistics that are out there, the UN in 2000 put a challenge up. Oh, could I put that slide back up there, please? The uh, UN put a challenge up there um, to have uh, half the number of people that don't have access to clean water by the year 2015 and pretty much made that number. And now the new goal is to eradicate it by 2030. But the thing I want you to do here is look at those two kids that we met in Rwanda on, the, on my right, your left, and think about them, and they're maybe four or five years old. And I was thinking about this, 2030, that's really exciting. We're going to solve this problem. And then I thought, okay, could I really tell that little girl on the left that she's going to be 20 years old before she has access to clean water? Uh, you know, it just... It just it's not acceptable, or 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 we've got to do better than that. Well, fortunately, and if you bring up the next slide, um, I've been very fortunate to work with an organization called Water for People. And I'll tell you a little bit about that, how we work, and then I'll let Malcolm talk more about um, Rwanda. But I've been involved with this organization for about 10 years. Uh, It came out of the North American water wastewater industry. So people that were running water utilities, people that were engineering companies, Um, said, hey, 150 years ago in the US, we didn't have this solved here, can we solve it in the developing world? So they wanted to to do something. So we all came together. Um, I was CEO of an engineering company, Um, Malcolm is chief operating officer of a software company, so we're volunteers, but we're very passionate about this, uh, because it also relates to the industry that we're in, and we've seen it. so our vision in our in this organization is, is we call it everyone forever. So it means every household, every school, every clinic will have access to clean water and sanitation forever. Well, that's a pretty big uh, tall order, but uh, thank you. Um, and we're making great progress. Uh, we work in uh, nine countries. We have about 180 employees, all uh, people from those countries, uh, plus our headquarters in Denver. uh, And we work in 30 districts, which are kind of like counties, think of them as counties, uh, representing four million people. And our goal is by 2018, to get all 30 of those districts to have everyone and forever. Wow, that's a pretty tall order. Um, So how do you do that? Uh, and that's really uh, something I think the organization has learned, and I, I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. Uh, next slide. Um, w- one way of thinking about it is it takes more than a, uh, a hand pump or a latrine. So if we were all to form a group and let's all go down to uh, Bolivia, and we're going to put a pump into some village, right? We put that pump in, we get back on the plane, we come home. What happens? Well, the pump breaks. There's no one there to own it. There's no, uh, nothing to sustain it. You put in a latrine, there's no one there to empty it. So what organizations has learned over time is you have to adopt a model that's more sustainable. And I won't get into all the parts of that. But we basically ask ourselves, all right, in this district or in this county, what would it take for everybody to have access to clean water forever and for us to leave? So they don't need us. They don't need an NGO. So some of the things that we've learned is who pays for it? So, we'll, we provide some of the funding, we ask the government to provide some of the funding, and the people have to provide some of the funding. So, typically, they'll form what they call a, a water committee, and it's usually women in a, in a group, and they may pay 25 cents a month per family to have access to the clean water. And that keeps it running, that keeps any spare parts that they need, but it also drives the ownership of it. We also work with the governments to do their part, so they have the technical knowledge to help these communities, and we also help. Uh, work with local businesses. So is there a business for emptying latrines? It's crazy as it sounds, but you build a latrine, no one can empty it. It's a problem, right? So we have to help build those, the infrastructure around it to get uh, everyone in those communities. And fortunately, we now have three districts out of our 30 at full coverage, at everyone. We, we monitor for 10 years later to make sure it stays place, and we're pushing like crazy to get those other 30 uh, uh, on the, on the way. So the next slide. Um, uh, if you want to learn more about this, this, is a great website. Our organization's website is waterforpeople.org. You can figure out how to donate. But one message I'd like to leave for you also is, as you're looking at other organizations, look for that sustainability part of it. You know, is it gonna is it gonna be there for a while? And a story that comes to me about that, and it really relates to, you know, what am I what am I grateful for? is uh, Chuck was asking. You know, I'm a very blessed person, you know, great family, uh, great health, uh, get to do a lot of great stuff. But I have two daughters, and it's probably, you know, the thing I'm, I'm probably most grateful for. And as I visit these villages and I see these little girls, it breaks my heart. And um, probably around 12 years ago, I was visiting India, and I was just learning some about Water for People. And we go into this little village, and this girl's probably seven or eight years old, and she comes up and holds my hand that's kind of different. You know, in the U.S., you're used to kind of stranger danger or something, but hey, this is kind of cool. You know, I got a friend. I got a buddy. So we're walking around the village, and we're looking at the new pump, and they're showing us how things are working, and she's, you know, so happy and so proud. Um, Okay, but then I had to leave, right? Had, Had to get back in the car, go on to the next village. So I've often thought, does that girl, does she still, is she still drinking clean water? Was she able to go to school you know, what kind of life is she having? Is she healthy? Did she get sick? And the work that we do at Water for People, I think, makes that possible. So that's, that's kind of what, what I'm grateful for and kind of what, at the same time, what drives me to, to really make this happen as, as quickly as we can, can, can make it happen. One of the other things I'm grateful for is I get to meet some terrific people. Uh, and with that, I'm going to introduce uh, my friend and a colleague on the board, uh, Malcolm Walter, and he's going to share more about Rwanda and, um, and kind of what we've, uh, what we've learned there and some of his personal uh, background.
2: Well, thank you, Pat, and uh, good morning. When our uh, plane touched down in the capital city of Kigali, I'm not quite sure what I expected to see, but I didn't expect to see what we saw beautiful skyline, brand new buildings, cranes in the sky, new roads that were built, a bustling citizenry, and an unmistakable sense of hope and optimism. And it wasn't always this way. At the Berlin Conference in 1884, the European nations got together to carve up Africa for colonialization. The Germans got Rwanda, and when the Germans arrived, they found three tribes there, the majority Hutu, or farmers, the Tutsi, or cattle herders, and then the indigenous Twa. Next slide. The Germans, believing the Tutsi to be of Caucasian origin, thought they were racially superior to the Hutus. So it was no longer about being farmers and cattle herders, it was about skin pigmentation. It was about the width and length of one's nose. After World War I, the Belgians came in and took over from Germany and they found it convenient to continue with the racial divide such that every Rwandan had an ID that said you're either Hutu or Tutsi. In 1962, as one African nation after another got its independence, is when Rwanda did. This was following those 75 years of racial divide. And so the seeds were sown for a series of civil wars that ultimately ended in a tragic genocide 32 years later. I want you to consider some numbers here. The first is the date that the genocide began, April 6, 1994. The second is the percentage of DNA that all human beings share with one another. 99.5% of our DNA is identical to every other human on the planet. And yet we choose to focus on that last remaining half a percent to define how we are different. We fight wars over that half a percent. The next number is the number in millions of Rwandans, overwhelmingly Tutsi, who perished in the genocide. The next number is the percent of the population that that number represented. Twenty percent of the Rwanda population perished. There wasn't a single family that wasn't directly impacted by the genocide. And the final number there is how many days it lasted until it was over. 100 days. And in the period leading up to the genocide and throughout until it was over, not a single civilized country, including the U.S., did anything. How does one recover from a tragedy of that magnitude? How does a nation rebuild itself? How does a neighbor get over the hatred? And I don't know the answer to that. But what I learned when we went to the Kigali genocide memorial was an incredible story of peace and reconciliation. And it starts with a leader, in this case Paul Kagame, whose mantra was and is to this day We are no longer Hutus and Tutsi, we were all Rwandans. And then it's thousands of acts of courage between individuals in reconciliation, where perpetrators confessed their crimes to their victims' families, and victims gave their forgiveness. Next slide. Consider this couple. That's Dominique on your left and Kinsilde on your right. Dominique had killed Kinsilde's husband and destroyed her home. And they came together for reconciliation. Dominique. The day I thought of asking pardon, I felt unburdened and relieved. I had lost my humanity because of the crime I had committed. But now I am like any human being. Concilde. After I was chased from my village and Dominique and others looted it, I became homeless and insane. Later, when he asked my pardon, I said, I have nothing to feed my children. Are you going to help raise my children? Are you going to build a house for them? The next week, Dominique came with some survivors and former prisoners who, were perpetrated, who had perpetrated genocide. There were more than 50 of them, and they built my family a house. Ever since then, I have started to feel better. I was a dry stick. Now I feel peaceful in my heart, and I share this peace with my neighbors. I'm going to move over here. I want to tell the story of uh, Percasey. So Percasey was a weaver. And she found reconciliation through weaving. She would gather, gather groups of Hutu and Tutsi women together, and they would weave these baskets that are now known as a peace basket. And this is a set of nested baskets. There are five of them, representing the generations past, present, and future of Rwandan women who are committed to rebuilding the country that they love. Speaking of women, 64% of the elected legislature in Rwanda are women. That's the highest in the world by uh, over 10%. The world's average is 22%. Yeah. Here in the U.S., we're 18. One of the things that I've learned as a result of being involved in this development work is that if you want to change the world, start with women, and then mobilize everyone. I'll move back here. When Chuck had asked... Uh, Pat and I just talk here, he explained that uh, this was the end of a series on living gratefully and that uh, would we share uh, if there was someone that we were grateful for and that moment in your life when you sort of got it, and, you know, you we were hit by this. Uh, and frankly, that's an easy question for me. And while there's so many people in this world for whom I'm grateful, uh, next slide, there, there are two that have impacted me uh, more than any others, and that would be my wife, my wife Wendy, and our daughter Kristen. Now when Kristen graduated from the University of Texas, she announced that she was gonna dedicate her life to the eradication of poverty through the NGO she had created in school, Feel Good. And I understand that last week, at New Church Live, uh, students from the local chapter, chapter of Feel Good came here and served grilled cheese sandwiches. That's awesome. So when she told this to us, uh, Wendy and I said, we'd better go check this out. So uh, next slide. We traveled to Africa, uh, and here we're standing in front of an epicenter that's built by The Hunger Project, uh, and we are there for its dedication. This is in Mozambique. And we were joined there by other investors of The Hunger Project, uh, as well as Wendy's father, uh, the former executive bishop of the new church, uh, Bishop King. And that man in the front uh, is the former president of Mozambique, Joaquim Chisano. We spent two weeks traveling throughout uh, Mozambique and Malawi, witnessing the incredible... Work that happens when you empower people to be the architects of the end of their own poverty. That was the moment in which Wendy and I both got it. And once you got it, you can never go back. Next slide. On the way home in the airplane, uh, Wendy's had this vision, the In In My Lifetime campaign, which was to raise money with the goal of eradicating poverty in Africa. I'm going to move one more time. It was four and a half years ago that I stood on this spot in this building The occasion uh, was Wendy's Remembrance Service. Two years after we returned from Africa, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and 18 months later she passed away. And during that Remembrance Service, I told a couple of stories and amazingly, two of them have to do with this building. The first occurred over 40 years ago. It was the first time I laid eyes on Wendy. And back then this building was an old beat-up gymnasium. And the society would get together on Friday nights for a dinner and Bible study. And if you wanted a date on Friday night, you had to be going to Friday supper. And if you thought you were pretty smart, you left before Bible study. (laughs) Well, that night I had a date. It wasn't Wendy. Uh, And I thought I was pretty smart, so we left right after dinner. And as we were leaving, up walks this gorgeous woman in this unforgettable red dress. I was later to find out that that was Wendy King. And one year later, we were married. Fast forward several years, and as fate would have it, Wendy becomes the development officer of the Academy of the New Church, who owns this building. And in that capacity, she led an effort of a capital campaign, which, among things, converted the old gymnasium into this incredible Mitchell Performing Arts Center. And then fast forward many years after that, and I'm standing here on this stage recounting our life of 35 years together, a life well-lived. Last time. Chuck had asked uh, and and mentioned that this service would be about paying it forward, and perhaps we'd want to say something about uh, paying it forward. And if I could have a slide here. This is the, uh, the picture of Wendy that, that um, was present during her service. Um, so paying it forward, having been to uh, Malawi and Mozambique with the Hunger Project, having been to Bolivia and then Rwanda with Water for People, having seen the transformative work of empowering people to end their own hunger, Having witnessed that a women first mobilize everyone's strategy leads to lasting change. Having a wife and been married to the woman I love most in the world. And having a daughter who is kind of a mirror image of her mother. And a person uh, who's better than I could ever hope to become. I'm compelled. I am driven, I am committed to paying it forward by spending my time towards working to eradicate extreme poverty. In September, 193 countries came together and they signed on to what is now known as the Sustainable Development Goals, which have as their ultimate end the eradication of extreme poverty by the year 2030. And that's only 15 years away. And while it's too late for Wendy's lifetime, it's not too late for me. This is where I will pay it forward. This will happen. And one last thing. Next slide. Whoops. I have to read this. On Wendy's uh, memorial plaque, it says, she believes the problems of the world could be solved through the empowerment of women and love. She was right. Final slide. If you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. This is the spirit that has led to peace and reconciliation in Rwanda. This is the spirit that drives the work of the Hunger Project and Water for People. And this is the spirit where, together, working with our brothers and sisters, in which our liberation is bound up with theirs, that we can pay it forward. And I hope you'll join me. And by join me, I mean find that thing in yourself that you are deeply passionate about. Find that place in your heart where is your true self. Find that place where your liberation is bound up with humanity. And then pay it forward. Please join me.
0: Thank you. So the words I want to close on, I want to close on them with a smile and a picture are these words. All the life a person has comes from God by way of communities. And we can even look at a picture that captures that. Isn't that beautiful, you know, the idea that in community and and, in this idea of that we're all in the boat together, in this idea of soon love soon, that we we can make changes in the world and that that's what churches are part of empowering, just part of it. Just a place where we can come together like today and just hear inspiring words and then maybe go out and just do our bit as God gives us to see it an incredible way that communities can be these vehicles for change. And that's so much of the living gratefully part where we understand, listen please and this gets said all the time, but I but I really want it to resonate where we can come to understand soon, love soon that it is all gift. It is all gift. Your money, your time, your effort, your energy, your family, your crazy dog. It's all gift. And when we can live in that place, do you see the connection there between paying it forward? Paying it forward is just passing on what we've been given. And we've been given a lot. And we can do it with a big old smile. So I want to thank all of you. What a great, great turnout today. Again, I want to go through, thank real quickly, the speakers, the singers, the soon-to-be sausage eaters. That all rhymed. You know, I want to thank all of you again. Thank you for making such a wonderful Sunday. Now, I'd ask you to join me in prayer. I'm going to say a prayer, then you have the opportunity to say your own silent prayer or the Lord's prayer as you know it, or to just enjoy a moment of quiet reflection. Lord, thank you for your presence here today. And Lord, allow us in some way to find that spark in our heart that allows us to pay it forward. Understanding, Lord, that in the end, it is all gift, everything. Lord, allow us to fully understand that means we own nothing and that we can share. We can share abundantly. Share abundantly the abundant life that we have been given. Thank you for Pat. Thank you for Malcolm. Thank you for Wendy's wonderful spirit that touches us. And thank you, Lord, for this amazing congregation. Let us go forth, Lord, finding that joy, that joy in the morning. In your name we pray. Amen.